0: In a few minutes, uh, we'll be in the book of Second Peter, and uh, we're looking at chapter 2, and focusing in on verses 10b through 22 of 2 Peter. Now, if we were to imagine for a moment that um, Peter wrote 2 Peter for a leading Christian journal today, and um, I believe if, if that were the case, I doubt there's even a chance that they would accept it for any publication. And you might say, well, why? Well, uh, according to today's standards, this chapter would be considered too harsh. It's too judgmental. It's too critical. It's too negative. It's it's. It's just lacking in grace it would have to be rewritten in a kinder gentler tone let's face it the chief virtue among our culture today is tolerance and if we're completely honest this always seems to creep into the church as well today's church is decidedly against anything that speaks of judgment Or criticism of those who profess to be evangelicals we will often hear this mantra uh, they will know we are Christians by our love not by our doctrine and the implication of this thought is that somehow love and doctrine stand in opposition to one another therefore if we must choose then we will choose love and we're willing to overlook doctrinal errors To add to it, the evangelical culture has fallen into the same morally lax worldly culture by mistaking God's grace to mean that we somehow get free passes on sin. We wrongly mistake grace as God being like an indulgent parent who's not really bothered by our sin. And if you preach that salvation results in a life that is obedient to God, then you get accused of being a legalist, or that you're not really understanding grace. Yet Titus 2, 11-14 make it clear that salvation does result in obedience to God. Additionally, 1 John chapter 3, verses 4-10 through 10, make it clear that a lifestyle of sin is clear evidence that one is genuinely uh, not saved. So 2 Peter stands in stark contrast, especially in chapter 2, to our culture's emphasis on being Nice to everyone who calls himself a Christian, no matter what they teach. In case we missed it, it virtually gets repeated in Jude. Both of these passages give us an extended portrait of false teachers so that we can study it carefully and be able to spot false teachers when they show up and we can avoid their teaching. So I wanna give you a reminder That as we read and study these verses, that they are indeed part of God's inspired word given to us, as Timothy says, for the teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness in 2 Timothy 3.16. Peter paints a picture for us of false teachers' characteristics, their deception, and finally their dismal state so that we can avoid them. So let's I'm prepared to read this and see what Peter tells us. So I'd ask that if you are willing and able, would you please stand as we read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10b through 22. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels... Though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. They count at pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who, Loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgressions. A speechless donkey spoke with the human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, so that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last day has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pray. Father, take this word this morning. Use it to penetrate our hearts. Help us to be able to to know what it is that false teachers how they how they act what are their characteristics how they how do they speak what do they how do they prey on on us so that we Lord would be able to recognize false teaching and know when it's against Scripture. But I pray that that our desire this morning would be to hear Your Word and that it would indeed penetrate our hearts. I pray that You'd speak. For your saints are listening this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Peter focuses in on the sinful lifestyles of these false teachers rather than their false doctrine. We'll learn in chapter 3 that that one of the main errors of of these false teachers, which always has uh, moral ramifications to it, was that they denied the second coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, so if Christ isn't coming back, then there's no need to live in light of future, future judgment. They also seem to teach that, that since we have freedom in Christ, that we're free to indulge in the flesh. And so the warning in these verses for us is to not only uh, be on guard against incorrect theology or doctrine, but also against any teaching that encourages us to tolerate sin in our life. So the first thing I, I want us to notice this morning is the characteristic of false teachers. They are filled with vanity, contempt, lust, and greed. So, Peter in verses 10 through 16 gives us these characteristics of false teachers. And rather than go through and, and break down every single last detail of these verses, I decided to, to uh, stick them into two groupings for us. First, we will see that they are filled with vanity and contempt and then we will see that they are filled with lust and greed and so first let's notice that these false teachers are filled with vanity and contempt vanity and contempt and the first part of verse 10 peter had noted that these men despised authority he then adds that they are bold and willful they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones whereas Angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So Peter describes their vanity and contempt by saying, hey, they they, they despise authority, and they are bold and willful. And Peter uses these, the word blaspheme or blaspheming in these verses three times, and it points out that they're, they, they have a total disregard for anything that is sacred or highly respected. These men... And their, and their vanity would pontificate spiritual matters. But they refused to humbly submit to God's word as their standard. They didn't fear God. And there's now actually some debate on uh, over who exactly these men are blaspheming. The New American Standard Bible gives an interpretive uh, translation and, and says angelic majesties. The, the Greek word literally is glory. Some people interpret this to be civil magistrates or or even church leaders. John Piper takes it to refer to the glories of God and of Christ, especially concerning his second coming. Piper believes that it is unlikely that Peter would use glories to refer to fallen angels. But with that said, most commentaries that I've consulted understand glories there, both in verse 10 and uh, in Jude 8, which is the, the cross of, of the Second Peter passage uh, to refer to fallen angels. That would mean that verse 11 then is saying that the holy angels, in contrast to false teachers, don't even bring blasphemous judgments against these fallen angels. Jude 9 is even more specific. It says this: But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. But said, the Lord rebuke you. So Jude here um, in that verse is referencing uh, ancient Jewish story that was called the Assumption of Moses, in which the devil argued with Michael about Moses, Moses' right um, to an honorable burial because he had murdered an Egyptian. And rather than uh, 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 rebuking the devil directly, Michael appealed to the Lord to rebuke him. And the devil fled so that Michael would uh, be able to complete the burial. Now, we don't know whether Jude uh, thought that that story was historically true or whether he was just using it to make a point. However, he is not saying that the entire story there is divinely inspired. The point that he's is making is that even Michael, the archangel, did not dare to bring a blasphemous judgment against the devil. But these daring, arrogant, false teachers thought that they were more powerful than Satan and the demons. And so they they have no hesitations about pronouncing these these blasphemous judgments against them. The same point is made in Zechariah chapter 3. When the prophet saw Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord... Joshua's clothed in filthy garments. And this was a representation of Joshua's sin and Israel's sin. And Satan stood there to accuse Joshua. However, rather than rebuking the devil directly, the angel who is called the Lord in this passage said to Satan in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Even the angel of the Lord appealed to the Lord in order to rebuke Satan. So here, Peter refers to these fallen angels as glories, even though they are evil, because they have impressive power. Jesus even called Satan the ruler of this world in John 12, 31, John 14, 30, John 16, 11. He's not in any sense as glorious as God, or even as glorious in might and power as the holy angels, but he does wield impressive power power, and authority during our present evil age. We don't need to fear the devil, but we should respect his power. In Christ, with our spiritual armor in place, we can stand firm against Satan, and we can ask God to rebuke him. But mark my words, Satan is not a force that we should take lightly. I don't know if you've ever spent any time Uh, Watching so-called Christian TV or some of these Christian TV preachers. They will boldly proclaim that they are going to stomp on the devil. They're going to bind demons. I never really did understand that. I'm not not sure what that language even means. I'm going to bind some demons or, or whatever. The audience applauds them. They'll shout amen. At, at, at this language against the devil, because it sounds good, right? It sounds great. I bind the devil. I, I'm I'm all this and a bag of chips or whatever it might be. But they don't have a clue about the power of spiritual forces of darkness with which they are dealing. It reminds me of the of the seven sons of Sceva back there in Acts chapter 19. They thought that they could command demons until the uh, uh, until the demon possessed man jumped all seven of them, overpowered them, and sent them running away naked. False teachers are always filled with vanity and contempt against spiritual authority. They think, well, well, they're in control. They have authority. They're going to bind Satan. They're going to do this to the devil. They're going to do this to demons. I'm in control of all this. And it's just not the case. Next, Peter shows us that not only that, but false teachers are filled with lust and greed. They're filled with lust and greed. No doubt these false teachers prided themselves on spiritual insight and their knowledge, but Peter compares them in uh, 2.12 to irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant. He that's why I enjoy honey. Irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed. It's that's, that's that's why I like to go hunting, because we're supposed to get animals in. And uh, I'm a meat eater, so I like to eat animals. But anyway, that's a side note. Peter is making the point that these men, these false teachers, have abandoned their God given Rational ability, and instead, of what are they doing? They're following their own lust, just like a bunch of animals. They were being controlled by their feelings, not by reason or by the truth of God's word. And so, so rather than uh, looking at Scripture and allowing Scripture to dictate everything, they're being controlled by how they feel. The last phrase when uh, it says will also be destroyed in their destruction can refer to God's final judgment on the fallen angels or what I think it refers to is God's destruction of all the animals on the earth when God destroys the earth by fire. The point is false teachers face God's eternal judgment because, they have, uh, because they've lived like a bunch of animals. They follow after their own lusts. And then when Peter adds in verse 13, suffering wrong as a wage of their wrongdoing, he doesn't mean, uh, uh, of course, that they will suffer an injustice from God. Instead, he's doing a play on words here in the Greek, which means that they have harmed others by their unbridled lust, and God will then inflict harm on them. It is the same as Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Peter further describes the lust that these false teachers have when he says this. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now most people who sin, they do it at night. Because their sinfulness can be hidden by darkness. These evil teachers—they didn't care. They partied in their sin all day long. If they had lived in our day, they would be on all the all the daytime TV talk shows. They would delight to tell of their uh, of the distinct details of their sins and let the world know what's going on. Peter goes on. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Later, Peter uses the opposite words of blots and blemishes to say that believers should be spotless and blameless in chapter 3, verse 14. When Peter says, while they feast with you, he is referencing the early Christian custom of coming together for a feast. Um, We're Baptists, so it's kind of like a potluck, right? come together, we get to eat good food, and, you know, it's a good time. I miss our potlucks. I can't wait till we can have another one. Before or after um, they would partake, before they, they came together for the Lord's Supper, they, uh, uh, before they had the Lord's Supper or after the Lord's Supper, they'd have these feasts. And that's what Peter is referencing. The parallels in Jude 12, it tells us this, these men are hidden reefs in your love feasts. The Greek word for deceptions in Second Peter is similar to that word of love feasts. It seems that Peter's making a wordplay again, saying that false teachers' evil behavior was not worthy of being referred to as these love feasts. Instead, it's an absolute deception. These teachers were deceiving the believers by, by attending these love feasts, but also they were deceiving them by thinking that they truly were sharers in the love of Christ and in the church. Look at verse 14 as Peter exposes their lusts. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. The word adultery literally is adulterous. The idea is that these false teachers looked at every single woman as a potential candidate to go to bed with. They preyed on them. They preyed on unsteady souls. This would be like a a newer professing Christian who are emotionally and spiritually shaky in their faith. Peter will refer to these These same unstable souls again in verse 18 as those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Notice that not only were these false teachers living to fulfill their own lust, but they were driven by greed. In fact, the New Testament often connects greed and lust together. Peter says that they have hearts trained in greed. We we get our uh, word gymnasium from the Greek word trained. The idea is that that these guys have worked out to get their hearts in shape for greed. That's kind of like what it's saying. They worked out to get ready for all the greed they were going to do. They took normal greed that we often struggle with. They took that to a whole new level. If you've ever uh, worked out with, with weights or anything, people talk about getting a pump. Right, the, the, they were way back when I was a teenager they had this thing on Saturday Night Live with Hans and Franz and we're going to pump you up. that's what they did and I thought it was hilarious but uh, anyway I don't know if you've ever seen it but it's always talking about getting a pump and getting a pump into your muscles because if you lift enough weight your muscle feels like it's just going to explode it's like man my muscles just going to explode out of my arm or whatever it is that's a pump and these guys we're, we're pumping greed up by frequent workouts. They're just so greedy in their life. And this is why Peter calls them accursed children. This is the Hebrew way of saying they are under God's curse or bound for hell. He then says in verse 15, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing. And almost all of the Greek manuscripts. and and early versions read son of Bosor," a name uh found a name that's not found anywhere else in the bible this causes some people to think it's a word play again on the hebrew word basar which means flesh and when you read the story of balaam in numbers 22 through 24 balaam seems like an okay guy he really does he's a prophet and on the surface, he makes a claim when you're reading it that that he won't say or do anything unless God permits it. But he was cunning. He was self-seeking. And he used his prophetic powers to line his own pocket. So when God would not let him curse Israel as the Moabite king wanted him to do, he instead advised the king to get his women to seduce the to to seduce the Israelite men. And so the false teachers imitated Balaam both in his greed and in his enticing and in his enticing people by their sensuality Peter then adds in verse 16 that, that Balaam received a rebuke for his own transgressions a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the madness of the prophets. Peter's intentionally using humor here he's saying that this dumb donkey had more spiritual insight, than the greedy prophet. That's what Peter's saying. And when Peter calls him mad, he does not mean that he was insane. He's saying that anyone who decides to pursue greed and sensuality is crazy because you're forsaking the right way and you're inviting the judgment of God in your life. And so Peter paints this picture of these false teachers that they're they're filled with vanity, they're filled with contempt, they're filled with lust, they're filled with greed. And he then goes on to reveal the deception that false teachers use so let's look at that point number two the deception of false teachers they are arrogant using hollow words to entice my sensuality promising freedom while they're slaves of corruption look how peter describes them waterless springs mists driven by a storm they're like a dry oasis in the desert Or they're like that cloud that you see kind of rolling over that you think is going to produce rain and then it just blows over. These false teachers promise to quench your thirst, but they don't deliver. These men were eloquent and persuasive. However, these false teachers do not call people to holiness and love for God. They appealed to the fleshly lust and greed. They told people that God did not want them to deprive themselves of the pleasure of sex. They'd say, we're under grace. We're free from the law. so know, There's no point in depriving yourself. Live it up. You might as well indulge yourself. Indulge your own lust. Indulge your greed. Do what you want to do. We are under grace. And as with all false teaching, there is some truth and some error. They get mingled together. God did indeed create sex to be enjoyed between a man and a woman who are committed to one another in marriage. The context of marriage, um, it's good. It's a good gift. It's to be enjoyed. But when it's taken out of the context and pursued just to fulfill our lust, then it leads to the slavery of sin. The world takes that lust, and it gives it a fancy psychological term and calls it sexual addiction. But Peter calls it for what it is, being a slave of corruption. The same thing is true when a person yields to greed, right? So so what happens when we yield to greed, we sometimes... um, gets displayed in someone's life through compulsive gambling or stealing. And, and uh, it's, it's not um, an addiction as if it were a disease, but sometimes people just become slaves of sin. And unfortunately, we often become slaves of sin willingly. And this is why we have to be careful of when teaching appeals to our fleshly desires, when teaching is enticing us to into sensuality. What verse 17 means is when it says they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, it means sinful abandon for our own cravings of the flesh. The point is that false teachers will promote these fleshly desires with with hollow, meaningless words saying that you have freedom in Christ, but you'll be a slave to sin. Sex and material possessions can be good things. There's nothing wrong with them. God prescribes them for proper enjoyment in the rightful place. But when these things become consuming objects in our life, then we fall in prey to false teaching. we fall prey to say, "Oh, well, this is just good for me. I I don't I don't need to I don't need to live a life of godliness. I can live how I want because God just wants me to be happy. That's all God wants for me, just to, just to be happy." Point number 3. The dismal state of false teachers. They are worse off now than if they had never known the way of righteousness. I want to reread verses 20 through 22 for us because I think it's so vital. It says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last day has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. and The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What do these verses refer to? Are are they talking about the false teachers or the people that are following false teachers? In context, the focus is, is mainly on the false teachers. But it has... Um, application to those who fall for the deceptive teachings of false teachers for a time they had escaped the defilements of the world by knowing christ as lord and savior but then they got entangled in these defilements again the last state they're in is worse than the first and so peter compares it to this dog returning to its own vomit and It's a shocking picture or a pig after washing going back into the mire these verses raise a few questions for us first um, what exactly does Peter mean when he says that their latter state is worse than their first state? And second, is Peter saying that believers can lose their salvation? First, there are two things that Peter may mean when he says that their latter state is worse than their first. It could be worse if a person had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, had some experience of the Christian life, and it would be more difficult to restore that person to a true knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you were talking with a person like that, if, if, they, if they had come into some sort of experience with Christ, and you talk to them about what it really means to follow Christ, they would probably say something along these lines Been there, done that, didn't work for me. Been there, done that, didn't work for me. Peter could also mean that their latter state is worse than the first because everyone will be judged on the amount of of light which they rejected. These people had been exposed to a lot of truth, but they turned their back on the truth to pursue their own sinful lusts, and they will be judged accordingly. Now, the second question has a simple, straightforward answer. No, a believer cannot lose their salvation. How do we know this? Well, the testimony of Scripture proves it. Those who God saves, He keeps. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Jesus said that He would not lose any of those that the Father had given them. John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. And no one can snatch the sheep from his hand. John chapter 10, verse 28. But to ask if a believer can lose his salvation, I believe, is the wrong question based upon this text. The question we should be asking is what does it mean to be a true believer in Jesus Christ? Or what is true saving faith? And so, I thought, well, let me see if I can help us in simple and straightforward terms. When God saves you, he changes your heart. He imparts new life to you so that your desires actually change. So instead of loving yourself, you now love God. And instead of seeking to please self, you now seek to please God. You now want to grow to know God. You love God's word. Furthermore, you hate your sin and you strive against sin. In other words, genuine saving faith always results in a life growing in godliness and obedience to Christ. Not sometimes, not part of the time, always. So stop and think about how many people (coughs) claim to know Christ and none of this is true in their life. If your experience is is, true, not like i just described then i would plead with you to go back and make sure that god has truly changed your heart because otherwise you just said a prayer because that's what you were told to do but god has to change your heart god changes your desire through faith in jesus christ so how do we explain these words of peter we said that these uh, these people had escaped the defilement of the world. They knew Jesus as Savior and Lord. They knew the way of righteousness. And for a while, at least, they had received the holy commandment of God's word. And some would say they indeed were truly saved. But they lose their rewards. But listening to Peter's language here, it doesn't sound like someone is losing their rewards. It's not what it sounds like. And that view flies in the face of, of chapter 2 in the entire letter. So I believe a proper understanding would be to know that Peter is using Christian terms to describe these false Christians because for a while they gave every single appearance of being a Christian. In other words, you would see these people in church or or elsewhere and you would talk to them and they would know all the right answers, they'd be able to say all the right things. And you would say, they're a Christian. They're like that seed that's, that's planted on the rocky ground, which sown on a thorny ground. Or for a while, they, they give the appearance of new life. But they don't per- persevere. They don't persevere and bear fruit unto eternal life. Genuine, saving faith perseveres on the path of righteousness. Always. Now i'm not saying that christians never sin it's not what i'm saying if you want proof just follow me around for a day you will know that christians sin and sometimes guess what christians sin big time however when a christian sins or when their sin is pointed out they genuinely repent and get back on the path of righteousness they say oh i'm They know they're a sinner, and they repent, and they get back on the path. False believers, like these false teachers, when they sin, they don't do that. You know what they're like? They're like that dog that returns to its own vomit, and the pid that goes back to its own mire. And if you've ever had a dog, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They cleaned up on the outside, but their nature was never changed. And so you'd look at them, and they would be clean on the outside. They, They look like a Christian, but their heart, their nature has never changed. And eventually, they act according to their true nature. They do not love God or the way of righteousness described in God's word because they've never, ever truly been born again. So let me conclude with this Is Peter too harsh? Is he too judgmental of these false teachers? Should should he come uh, to the more enlightened side of the 21st century evangelical and join them in singing, we are one in spirit? Or did the Holy Spirit inspire Peter to write these words to give us this long, sad portrait of a hall of shame so that you and I can spot false teachers and avoid following their sins? Let me remind you that the air that Peter is describing is one that is secretly introduced. It's not, it's not just out in the open, hey, I'm about ready to teach you some false teaching, folks. You better listen up. It's not what's going on. It's secretly introduced. It's not immediately apparent. It's only seen in time. Fleshly indulgence is dramatically apparent when men and women live in adultery and sexual perversion it was readily evident in Sodom and Gomorrah here's my fear that same fleshly indulgence is all too common in evangelical churches today and it's not so much open immorality though that's becoming more and more common but it's a sensuality and self-indulgence that is more subtle and even can even be spiritual in appearance just this this self-indulgence me 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 the last night my wife was going to we got home and she was going to the uh, going to pick us up some food and she was going to mcdonald's for the kids and i said i want a taco bell and she pulled into the drive-thru, sent me a text message and said something like, oh, I'm like number nine or something like that. And I was like, well, you didn't go to Taco Bell first, did you? And she was like, why? And I was like, well, I'm just being selfish
1: because <laughs> I wanted my
0: food hot. And, and I just immediately was like, man, that's, but that's what I'm talking about so often. It's just self-indulgent. How often in the church do we appeal to the flesh? How often do we, do we give in church in order to get? Maybe we do something so I can I get recognition. <coughs> so someone will pat me on the back or, or someone will, will tell me, good job, or hey, nice work, or I see what you did there. And that's, that's our motivation for doing it. That's the wrong motivation. There's nothing wrong with encouraging people and telling them good job. But if that's your motivation, that's, that's a fleshly motivation. Or how often do we do something because we're motivated by pride? Because because it boasts our ego. That's fleshly indulgence. And when we brag about ourselves or what we did, look at what I did or look at what I accomplished. That can be fleshly indulgence. Jesus constantly spoke about his cross. And those that would follow him, must take up their cross every single day. Why do we talk so little about the cross that we have to bear and so much about the fulfillment and satisfaction that we can find as Christians? Why do we do that? Well, well, if you follow Jesus, you'll be fulfilled and you'll be satisfied in your life. Why do we not say, if you follow Jesus, you have a cross that you have to bear every single day? Granted, our fleshly indulgence may not have reached the proportions that we see in the world around us. Or in the places like Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's still alive and well in the saints and in the church today. This is not the way of the gospel. This is not the way of the cross. May God give us the grace to heed Peter's words this morning. And maybe this morning, when I was walking through genuine saving faith, you realize that you've never truly been saved. I want you to know that today, you can put your trust in Christ. You can can do that by praying something like this. And do this every week because we have people that tune in online. But you can pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son and died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It's not a magic prayer. I say that every week. It's not a magic prayer that saves you. Christ saves you if you call out to him and place your trust in him. If you said that prayer, you want to know more about that or or something along those lines, I'd love to follow up with you. You can can come forward at the end of the service. If you're online, you can text the word faith from your smartphone to 309-328-3488. You can even do that in your pew if you want to. If you don't have a smartphone, but you can text. You can still text that number and I can respond to you. Either way, lastly, I want us to understand this. It's Something I read uh, that comes from Michael Green in his commentary, he says this. Why has Peter expended so much powder and shot on the false teachers in this check? Because Peter is primarily a pastor. He is concerned to feed his master's Sheep. That's what pastors do. They feed their masters sheep. John 21, 15 through 17, 1 Peter 5. And Peter is furious to find the sheep being poisoned by lust that's masquerading as religion. And so I plead with you study this carefully. Because your eternal destiny destiny may very well depend on it. Study these verses carefully. And truly ask yourself this morning, are you living that life that brings honor and glory to God? Or are you instead part of the hall of shame? Is Christ evident in your life? Let's close with prayer. Father, I thank you. for this word this morning. I thank you that we could we could come and, and gather together here and read it and, and look at it. And Lord I pray that that through this we'd be able to spot false teachers. That that when we tune in on T V or somewhere else that, that we'd understand those that, that are false teachers, and we quickly tune it out. And Lord, I, I would pray that if in our hearts this morning, we've identified areas where we've allowed kind of this self-indulgence to creep into our, our life as, as believers, Lord, I pray that we would repent of that. If we've, if we've done things and out of selfish motivation, if we've done things uh, to feed our pride, if we've done things to feel good about ourselves or just to get a pat on the back, if those things are our motivations, Lord, that's, that's sin. Lord, I pray that we'd be a church and a people that would do things for your honor and glory. There's nothing wrong with encouraging and and helping one another and and saying good things about one another, but God, I pray in the end that everything that we do as a body of believers and individually in this body would be to glorify you. And that would be our primary question before we do anything. Does this glorify God or is it to glorify myself? That should be our question. And so Lord, I'd pray that, that if we have wrong motivation here this morning, that we'd repent of that and that you would you would speak to our heart and life. And then Lord, I'd pray for those that that maybe heard this message, that don't know Christ as their savior. And and Lord, maybe when I was walking through genuine saving faith, for the first time, they realized that their heart truly has never changed. Maybe they just said a prayer, but. They know that you never really changed their heart. They're still living for self, still gratifying selfish desires. And so, Lord, for those that, that, that don't know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. I pray that they would respond. Speak to us this morning and help us to respond appropriately. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, you'd be willing to come this morning.